Lord Jesus, our applause, our attention, our gratitude is for you. We've not gathered to praise one another or think highly of each other. We have gathered to praise you, to think highly of you. So rearrange our thoughts and our hearts. Dig into our ways of thinking, Lord, that do not please you. And may everything I say and do as I have the privilege of opening your word help people keep the great commandment to love the Lord their God supremely, and then in love for you, turn and love each other. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Good morning. I thought there might be a decent house at the second service on Time Change Sunday. <laughs> Welcome. Did you enjoy the sleep? I wish I could say the same. It was, it was dark and cold and terrible this morning. Did you notice? Yes, let's lament in Southern California about the cold snap we're having. Let us tell our friends in Kansas, Iowa, and Massachusetts how hard it is here. Welcome. If we haven't met, my name is Bruce Garner. I'm the senior pastor here at Cross Point, and I have a great privilege most Sundays of opening the Bible with you. And this is unusual, but this morning I want to tell you, before we actually read God's Word together, I want to tell you the intention of this message. It comes from a letter that Paul wrote under duress. If you take him at his word, and you should, he's, reading under, he's writing under the inspiration, the authority, and the power of God. He's expressing a brokenheartedness to a group of Christians with whom he had only spent a few weeks. As you read the passage and you understand that this is the heartbroken lament and expression of desire of an apostle, it may seem on the front side not to have much to do with you. This passage is especially applicable as we fast forward, and there are no more apostles, but there are pastors and church leaders. It'll feel and sound especially applicable to guys like me, to pastors people who serve vocationally in ministry. You'll see also that it has an immediate applicability to the many people who serve in the ministry of Cross Point Church. Those who serve as their vocation on a church payroll are actually very few. There are over 200 that serve others out of obedience and love for Jesus and other people. You'll say, well, I can hear how it would apply to Bruce. Bruce is preaching to himself this morning. That may also, and I am, this is a very confrontational passage to me. It hits me right in the heart. It corrects me. It's, it's tough on me. And you may see that it applies also to those who have stepped forward, and especially those who are in some kind of public capacity, those who lead our men's ministry, our women's ministry, the drug and alcohol recovery ministry that meets here on Thursday nights. You may see that it fits them very well. But what about everybody else? Did you just come to hear kind of shop talk for church leaders? No. After some prayer and consideration, let me tell you why I'm sharing the passage with you. It's meant to give you a picture, biblically, not my idea, but straight from the Bible, of the kind of church we should be and we're striving to be. Some of you have come here for just a few weeks. I sincerely hope you found us friendly. Maybe some of you haven't. 
Years ago, I had a, a pretty good-sized marriage group that met on Sunday mornings. My mother attended. My parents are missionaries. She came from, from Mexico and spent a few days with us. And I, you know, you try not to be so conscious of people and be so self-conscious, but my mom's in the crowd, so I'm maybe trying a little harder. And I thought we had a pretty good day. And on the way home, she said, Bruce, I just have to tell you, that, group's, that group of people is unfriendly. So what do I do now, Mom? Do I quit? Do I call the deacons? What, what exactly is supposed to happen in this scenario? Maybe that's been your experience. I, I hope not. I, I pray not. But the heart of this passage is something that is very countercultural for two reasons. One is cultural, the other is personal. In the passage we're going to share together, Paul is going to plead, pour his heart out for people in the Thessalonian church, including him, to be face-to-face and heart-to-heart. In other words, for them to have genuine, warm, loving, trusting relationships where they are invested in one another's lives so that buzzwords, what often sound like buzzwords in the Christian world, actually become a reality. We use words like this. We talk about community. We talk about fellowship. We talk about life together, a shared life. Those are more than buzzwords. As I hope to show you from Scripture, that was actually God's very idea. When He brought you to faith in Christ, He united you with Jesus, who died on the the cross for your sins and rose from the grave, as we've just been singing, to conquer death in your place. He is life. He has life. He gives life. He did not do it for his own sake. He did it for your sake. He did not die for his own sins. He did not face death because he deserved it. He faced death. He took sin upon himself so that he could absorb the punishment of God because I deserved all of that. And once Jesus brings you into a relationship with him, at that very moment, his intention is not only to unite you to him, As these two words that you'll find all over your New Testament, not only to put you in Christ, but also to put you in life, in fellowship, in community with other Christians. And that's hard on a cultural level because we have specialized in creating a highly customized, fiercely individualistic life that extends into the life of the church. I wouldn't expect you to hear about this, but it's kind of pastor shop talk. Some months ago, a very large church had a public launch for a completely online church. They said, we've even got a lobby. Apparently, you could chat with people on the lobby, say hi, complain about the weather, then listen to the sermon online, and that was it. And this was offered and celebrated as a good thing. May I suggest to you that it's not ideal? It's not ideal at all. That's a, that may be a necessity, that may be an expediency. It's not the way God designed us to live. Because we are, he says, not we, the body of Christ. A separated, isolated body that is where the members are separated from each other is a medical emergency. It's a death. It's not our normal reality. You lop your right index finger. I doubt you look at it laying in the streets. That's okay. I've got another one on the other side. No. So culturally, 
Sometimes with the help of Christian churches, we've crafted a church that you can make all, well, we've crafted a Christian experience, a delivery of content that is all about you. That's the cultural momentum, especially in the United States, especially with the advent of the internet. To make it utterly to your convenience, and here's, I've learned something about people as a pastor. They're inconvenient. Have you noticed? You've got friends and family too, right? Have you noticed how inconvenient people are? They won't do what you ask. They seldom fit your schedule. They're contrary. They have their own ideas. So do you. And the cultural solution in large parts of the Christian community in the United States is, that's okay, don't bother with people, just absorb this biblical content, you'll be fine. That's one reason that this sermon is going to be countercultural. The second is highly individualistic, highly personal rather. Half of the people in this room are introverts. I've been running this survey in classrooms and churches, groups I've been invited to speak to for about, I don't know, seven or eight years when it finally dawned on me that not everybody's a psycho extrovert like I am. <laughs> you think you are or they should be, right? I'm the guy who starts conversations in grocery store lines with complete strangers. <laughs> how you doing? Because I'm, I'm fine, how are you? Right, here we go. <laughs> New friend. My poor kids are taking a knee at the end of the grocery store like, oh no. He put himself out there, that other Nimrod bought it, and we're going to be here for 20 minutes while they talk about who knows what. That's extroverts. We're wired to reach out. About half the world isn't. Half the people in this room aren't. And you'll hear this sermon, and because God made you introverted with your own unique gifts and your own unique wiring, the culture tells you there's something wrong with you in being introverted, and there's not. It's the way God made you. That's your temperament. That's part of His design for you. There are depths, generally, and creativity in introverts that we extroverts do not possess. We're too busy talking to other people. It's harder for us to be thoughtful. Harder for us to be creative. So you're going to hear this sermon and say, cool for the extroverts, but that doesn't apply to me because people drain the life out of me. That's how introverts feel. I get pumped up when I see people. I can be dog tired, walk in here, see all of you, it's like, yes, people. <laughs> introverts, oh man, people. And you, both culturally and personally, will have a temptation to dismiss this sermon, to think that Paul is being highly personal, reflecting on his own experience, his own apostleship, and think that this doesn't apply to you, and it does. It's just that your circle has to be smaller. Whether you have a very large circle or a very small circle, you were saved and made anew in Christ to be united to Him and to at least a few other people with whom you could be heart to heart and shoulder to shoulder. And it won't work with everybody, but it has to work with at least a few or you won't be walking in the will of God. And I'm sharing this sermon to tell you this is what Crosspoint was made to be. This is what we are striving to be. 
to be the kind of people who are not only in love and loving Jesus, but in love and walking with each other in all kinds of different circles and all kinds of different fellowships. We have ministry teams, we have Bible study groups, we have discipleship groups, we have grief share, we have divorce care. On Thursday nights, a group of people who came to realize that they were fatally addicted to drugs and alcohol gather and are very open-hearted with each other, and God is doing tremendous amounts of healing in that group. On Tuesday nights, we have men who have confessed to God and at least to one other man their addiction to pornography, and God is setting men free in that group. Wherever the circle is, we have in the back table, if you haven't noticed, there's an activity group there. we got people surfing together. We've got ladies knitting together or crocheting. I'm not sure. I don't know really the difference, but, but something, something is going on with needles and yarn that uh, some people find helpful. What's the point of all that? Is this some kind of glorified activity club with the cross? No, we are trying through every kind of avenue with all these different personalities and with all these different schedules to make sure that Christians not only have a relationship with Jesus, but that they live it and express it in community with other people. Because that's how God designed us to grow You can't even keep the dozens of commandments in the New Testament, the one another's we call them, unless you're in relationship with at least a few others. Paul wrote to the Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. However will you do that if nobody knows you? So some of you in this group, in this service, are lonely. You found perhaps, as some have told me, as my mother told me all those years ago, over 20 years ago, you found people unfriendly. This is a biblical exposition to show you a better future, to show you God's design and to tell you wherever you are, whatever season, whether you've just come to faith in Christ, or perhaps this morning after hearing the gospel time after time from here, you will finally turn from your sins and trust Jesus, or you're a very mature person, whether you're a church leader who's growing tired and discouraged, wherever you are, this is intended to tell you why this community, why this shared life, why this fellowship is so important and why we should fight for it. Read with me in 1 Thessalonians 2 and you'll see what I mean. Here's the backdrop. Paul has been with the believers in the city of Thessalonica for the space of only three weekends. On three Sabbaths he's gone in, he's opened the scriptures and some have come to faith in Christ. Wicked people stirred up trouble in that city and would have killed Paul, so the believers in the believers got him out of town literally under the cover of darkness. Paul wasn't like a modern-day evangelist who gets the key to the city. He was almost always running for his life one step ahead of a mob. Sometimes they caught him. On more than one occasion, they tried to kill him once he was left for dead. This time, Paul has left a genuine group of brand new Christians behind him, but he's had to run for his life, and this, he tells them, is what he felt because of their separation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. Everybody have it? He says, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, Not in heart, 
we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Please hear it again. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. Because we wanted to come to see you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Why do we fight for face-to-face ministry? Why not just go big online? We have people who watch us from all over the world. I get emails occasionally from people I've never met. Ireland, Pakistan, weird places. Why not just double down on that? Wouldn't that be easier? Why put all this effort into bringing people together whose culture and maybe even their temperament is telling them just to go off on their own and be left alone? Well, Paul says in verse 17, if you look very carefully, he says that face-to-face ministry for him and for these Thessalonians is worth fighting for for one simple reason. He says, so you are torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person. But then he says what? Not in heart. In other words, I had to leave, but my heart stayed back with you. I think it's a pretty understandable idea that generally you want your body to be where your heart is, right? You don't want those two to come apart. Paul says, I had to run for my life, but my heart didn't leave. My desires, my intention, my will is still to be with you. And it's really, really striking language. It may seem too intimate. It may seem overdone to you. He says in the first phrase, we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time. One of your Bible translations were say we were orphaned. It's a very intense Greek term. It pictures a rupture, a separation in their relationship that left Paul not disappointed but bereaved. Grieving, heartbroken, because he couldn't be with them anymore. And the translation that put the word orphaned there, where my Bible, English Standard Version, translation of the Bible says torn away. Both of those terms, torn away, orphaned, are intense on purpose. It pictures what is in the heart of a Christian leader, someone who has decided to love and serve others when he can't be with the people that God has called him into community with. I had a really striking, heartbreaking example of that years ago. It fell to me. I was asked to do something awful. I was asked to go to a stranger's house and tell two little children that their sole remaining parent had died unexpectedly and that they were orphans. I don't know how, 
But as soon as the door to that shabby little apartment opened, the fifth grade girl who opened the door saw me and never having met me, knew instinctively why I was there and screamed and ran into the apartment leaving the door open behind her. And the longest, most painful walk I've taken in my life was following that little girl down that hallway, finding her hugging her little sister, and then kneeling down and trying to gently tell them that it's the worst day of their life and that I couldn't tell them what had to happen next. Paul says... That's how he felt when he had to run. It's either stay in Thessalonica or die. So other Christians come to him and say, you're leaving. People did this for Paul from time to time. They got him out of town. He left, but he says to the Thessalonians, what that felt like was not the next thing on the list. We felt like, verse 17, we were torn away from you. We were orphaned from you, but that only happened in person, not in heart, and we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face. The reason this culture, this philosophy of ministry, this idea that we are face to face and we love and we serve each other, not at a distance and not on the basis of convenience, but on the basis of commitment is because when a church leader's heart, and when the people's heart is in the right place, their hearts are always together. They're never indifferent to fellowship. And you'll say, well, you know what, that, that's, that all sounds ideal, but you haven't been in my small group. That's a tough group of people. It's messy. Yes, it is. May I suggest to you that that's exactly where we grow? Some of you have learned to forgive because others in this church have offended and hurt you. And out of love for Jesus, rather than skip town, get a new church, just watch online, you've gone to them. A brother and a sister, two brothers in the family of God have fought, and the more mature person has said, this isn't right, this is not what Jesus saved us to do, and they start the awkward conversation you know what always happens? The relationship is stronger from that point forward because they went through something difficult together. That doesn't happen if it's all super customized, highly individualized, what content, what services can be delivered to me, and I don't give my heart to anybody else. Paul goes on to say, the very next verse, verse 18, we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but what's it say? Satan hindered us. Now you've got to ask yourself, do you take Paul seriously? Because he just threw down the devil guard. You believe him? Yes. This is spiritual warfare. Paul says, I've been trying to get back to you, but the enemy has a vote too. Satan has stood in the way. We've been physically separated, but our hearts have never lifted you. You're in my mind continually. You can read his prayer for them in the first chapter. It's spectacular. His joy is bursting in the first chapter as he says, I remember when you turned from idols to serve the living God. Wow. I was there. Jesus used me to do that, Paul says. You received the word of God as it is. 
It wasn't merely human. God's Word came with authority and power into your life. God turned you from sin and turned you to Him, which is the whole point of any and every sermon, that you would turn from your idols and turn to God. And that's why our hearts are still with you, and I've been trying to get back, but Satan has hindered us. I personally, I, Paul, have tried, I have desired, but Satan's in the way. In other words, what has kept us apart is spiritual war. Number two, we fight for face-to-face ministry because the devil wants us far from you. He wants us separated. He wants the family divided. He wants leaders weary and people indifferent. People self-centered. People jaded. People tired. People exhausted. People sick of other people and barely putting up with God. That is, the, that is Satan's chief aim. That if he can't get you to turn your back on Jesus, he'll disappoint you so much with other Christians that you won't see the need to love and be loved in a small circle at least of Christian friendships and relationships that you won't value that and he can isolate you and get you off to your own and divide the body of Christ. You say, are you aiming this sermon? Something going on? No, we're in a sweet season. In my, as far as I know, maybe there's some cabal of committee somewhere getting rid of me uh, on Tuesday, I'm not sure. (laughs) But as far as I can tell, we've never been more united in love. We've never had a greater unity of purpose. There's never been more harmony between us as a group of believers. It's been awesome. I'm not trying to counteract or correct anything that's currently going on. I'm telling you where the fight always rages, and that is to separate us, to divide us from each other. To tempt some of you, especially if you're new, to come in if you can, if it goes well for you, to enjoy the sermon and go, okay, cool. Maybe that'll be good for me next Sunday. I don't need to know enough of these. I don't need to know any of these people. I don't need to open my life up. I'm busy enough. Very American, very understandable, very 21st century thing. Here's the problem with that. According to verse 18, it is Satan himself who is working to keep people apart. We're at war. And the point of war is to fight battles, to beat enemies, not for the sake of war, but so that we can remain united. Has it ever occurred to you what a soldier most wants? He wants to go home. He has a duty to do. He has sworn himself an oath to the nation and to his brothers and to his fellow citizens that he will fight when necessary and called to do so. But what he most wants is for the war to be over and for him to go home, to be reunited with his family. There is a spiritual war raging around and within every church, every body of Christ, this one and all the genuine bodies of Christ, where other Christians have gathered and wherever they were scattered to minister during the week, that Satan's purpose is always the same, to divide us, to stand between us, to block us, to make us self-centered, to make us busy, to make us jaded, to make us distrustful, to make us cynical, so that you have no genuine friendships. That's what we're striving for. We're striving against the devil's purpose to separate us so that instead we will be united. And then Paul says at the end, 
But his vision is not only on the present disappointment, the grief of not being with them and the war to get back to them. But he looks further ahead to joy. Verse 19. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Look through the text. Look how Paul thinks of these ordinary people. He's been with them for three weeks alone. Just three weeks. Why does he love them so much? Because he's seen the miracle of the gospel flame up again in the lives of ordinary people who were just recently strangers. He's seen people who were snared in idolatry like every human being is, and idolatry means that you put someone or something, maybe yourself, in the place of God, and you don't know it, but it's slowly killing you. And you're living for something that maybe yourself and maybe the culture and maybe both tells you is the very center and the very purpose of your life, and you're wrong, and it's killing you. Those were the Thessalonians, and Paul brought the good news of Jesus to them. They turned away from their sin. They turned to Jesus. And in these last two verses, Paul says, you're our hope. You're our joy. You're our crown of boasting. Jesus will come back for us someday, and the hope, the glory, the, the joy, the crown of boasting... All of these things, all of this exaltation, all of this celebration, it's you. You're the reason we're so happy. And you may think that Paul's laying it on too thick. And I will tell you as someone who has had the blessing of seeing people move from darkness into light, there's absolutely nothing like it. And those of you who are most fulfilled and most rewarded in ministry are those who are serving in any of these capacities, but you've watched people grow in Christ. You've seen people come to faith in Christ, or you can see through your small influence that they have become more like Jesus as they've gone through life with you. And there's absolutely nothing like it to know that you had some part in someone coming closer to the Lord who made them and died for them. Wow! Nothing better on earth. And I think of it like this. See, it's, it's weird, but my kids are old all of a sudden. They were babies two weeks ago, and now, now they're both taller than I am. They're both quite a bit stronger than I am. They've realized it. <laughs> and that's not good. And something happened in me. See, for most of my life, beginning about age 10, I started thinking a lot about who I was and what I was supposed to be. You remember that? Some of you are right in the middle of that. You got big dreams, big visions, big questions. You can see yourself doing three or four different things, becoming three or four different kinds of people. And for a long time, that was kind of all-consuming. Through my schooling, through my training, I would meet people and say, maybe I could be him. 
Maybe I could be like that. That looks kind of cool. That looks rewarding. That looks awesome. Maybe I could do that. And I tried on all these different identities, and I spent so much time thinking about my impact and what my life would mean. It was just a part of growing up. But now that my kids are adults, I've got a 22-year-old and an almost 19-year-old, I discovered that somewhere along the line, as we all grew older, my mind started changing. I now think much more of the kind of men they will be, the path they will follow, the blessing they will be. And I really had to think about it. I said, this, am I just the classic middle-aged guy who kind of gives up? Well, my dreams are dead. I guess I'll focus on the kids now. I peaked in college, as it turned out, and that's, uh, maybe the kids will do well. Such a failure. I thought about that, and I don't think that's it. I think what's actually happened is God in His grace has taught me to love them and to be deeply concerned as I look toward the end of my life to envision, invest, love, pray, counsel, encourage, confront, do everything I can with the little time I have left before they fly out of the nest so that they can be better men than I ever dared to be. And I think that's at the heart of what Paul is saying here when he says to ordinary people, please understand, you're our hope. You're our joy. The only crown of boasting, in other words, the only reason we will have to give Jesus that our lives were worth it is to turn around and look at you. And if God has given you any influence over any other believers and parents, especially in your own home, may I suggest to you that the greatest thing you could ever do is fix your eyes on the throne of Jesus and be determined to take your family with you. To say, Jesus, these are my children. These are my grandchildren. You gave me the gospel and you gave me influence. You gave me time with them. Here they are. That's what you're going to be proud of. That's where you're going to find joy. That's where you're going to find glory. Because, number three, we fight for face-to-face ministry for this simple reason. You will be, other people will be our greatest joy when Jesus comes. Applying this as a pastor, Jesus will someday say to me, not just from this scripture, but from others I won't take the time to mention, Jesus will bring all kinds of people in to my sight and say, these are the people I gave you for a short time, Bruce. Where are they? How did you serve them? How did you love them? How did you pray for them? How did you guide them? And that's one of the burdens of pastoral leadership. I take it seriously. There have been times where I have neglected that duty and I've asked God's forgiveness and sometimes I've asked for yours as well. The Bible tells me that I'll give an account for souls entrusted under my care for a short time. You have a family. You have friendships. You have unbelieving people all around you. If you know Jesus, your circle may not be public. You may not stand up on a stage. But whoever you are, even if you're an introvert who relishes and can profit from three or four deep friendships, 
And you don't need to know everybody. You don't want to know everybody. But these three or these four, they'll be your hope. They'll be your joy when you help them grow in Christ. In other words, when the body loves, serves, cares for, disciples, teaches, encourages, admonishes, and spurs each other on to the good works that Jesus has set before us. I'm pleading with you. If it's biblical content, you can find it all over. You can find better preaching online, several different sources. It's true. What is irreplaceable in God's plan is a few people who have endured all the indignities, all the inconveniences, all the troubles of loving and serving one another who, because they belong to Jesus, say to one another, beginning with the leadership, we belong to each other. We will serve and love and give to one another and together we will grow up in Christ. And we will fight to keep our hearts together. We will fight to be shoulder to shoulder. When separation comes between us, we will recognize that as spiritual warfare and endeavor to do our best to come back together. And we will look forward as we disciple others beginning from our own family and help them walk along with Jesus that that will be the greatest joy we have when Jesus finally comes for all of us. What am I trying to tell you? Face-to-face -face ministry is difficult. But it's worth it. I'm asking you specifically, if you're lonely in this church, to have some humble courage this morning and put yourself out there. I know some of you are. I know this because I received an email between services where someone said, I watched online. I can't be there this morning. This is very hard for me. Here it is. Man. I got a shiver then and just now thinking about it. I don't know that story. I barely know that person. They've only been here for a few weeks. I know this. That person heard the word of God, responded, and did something very vulnerable and something very brave. I don't know anybody. I'm lonely in this church fellowship. What can you do for me? Well, I don't know yet. Pray for her. Pray for the people I'll introduce her to. I know this, if God will give us both grace and she can connect with a few other people six months, a year from now, she won't recognize herself. She'll feel so loved, so accepted, she will feel so safe in those godly relationships that she will understand what the body of Christ was meant to be in the first place. And not all of you get that. And that's the war. That's the fight. That's why it's worth it. Even when we hurt and disappoint one another, we turn back to Jesus and we say to him, Lord, because we love you, we will love each other. Because we aim to serve you, we will serve one another. And it won't be easy, but it'll be worth it. So let me be very practical. If you're one of those who is not yet connected, and it may be nobody's fault, you're just new, you've just been sliding in and out, but you're not really connected. You have a burden or a joy, you don't know who you would tell. You don't know who would celebrate with you. You don't know who you could appeal to when life is starting to hurt you. Would you please do me a favor in the name of Jesus? If that's your situation and you have a pretty good inkling that this is where God wants you, will you take the card in your bulletin, 
fill it out, give me some contact information, and with all candor and confidentiality, I promise I will be in touch. We will commit ourselves to Jesus and we will see what he does for you. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for showing us a better path. We remake church and ministry and I've certainly often remade my schedule in a way that's more pleasing to me. Help this be a body beginning, Lord, with our vocational leadership and going all the way through those who serve voluntarily. Bless them all. Bless the lonely and the brokenhearted and the sick of church crowd that has somehow decided this morning to give a public church gathering one more look, one more try. Help them to hear, Lord, the heart of this message, of this passage saying that we belong together. That it's not easy to walk together. It's not easy to bear one another's burdens. It's not easy to serve and love and forgive each other, but it's totally worth it. This offering, Lord, this is for you. We give to you. We give for the good of others. You'll store up a treasure for us in heaven someday, Lord, and you will greatly reward those generous givers. But for now, we may not see the effect. Help us to trust you that when Jesus comes, there will be hope, glory, crowns of, voice, of boasting, of joy, as we look at you and look around us and see the great crowd that you've gathered because of simple, obedient faithfulness to love and serve and give. Some are right on the edge, as this person did between services, of going a little bit out of their comfort zone and saying, I need to make friends. I need to get connected. I pray that that good word from your book would not be snatched away. They would act on it this morning. They would put their card in the basket or in the box. And then in a few weeks, Lord, in your own time, we'll commit that to you. They would marvel at how good you've been in blessing them with friends and people to love them. In Jesus' name, we ask all this and give this to you. Amen.